I told him about the way they get to know you, not the way people do. Dogs do want to know every last thing about you. They take in the smell of you. They know from the next room asleep when a mood settles over you. The difference is there's not an end to it. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I've been a member of Selected Shorts' extended family for a while now. My own short stories have been read by some of my favorite actors, such as Blythe Danner and Jill Eikenberry, and I've participated in events at Shorts' home theater, Symphony Space, including a night of performances from the Best American Short Stories the year I edited that anthology. You may also know me from my novels, including The Female Persuasion, The Interestings, and The Wife, which was made into the film starring Glenn Close and Jonathan Price. And if you've read my work, you probably know that I'm interested, all right, obsessed, with families and marriage and the many shapes that the lives of women can take. So I was delighted to get a new invitation from Shorts to host a radio program in which close relationships figure hugely. First up, Funeral Platter, a story by Greg Ames that's really a black comedy. Martin and Jane are retired. They are tired of playing blackjack and pruning trees, so they decide to kick retirement up a notch by staging a dress rehearsal of sorts. Spoiler alert, dress in black. They're quite the couple, so we got quite the couple to perform them, Annette O'Toole and Michael McKean. Annette O'Toole is known for her television work on Nash Bridges, Smallville, and the miniseries It, among other credits. Michael McKean's many film and television credits include his work with Christopher Guest in This Is Spinal Tap, Best in Show, and A Mighty Wind, and television series such as Better Call Saul. He also hosts his own series on the cooking channel, Food, Fact or Fiction. O'Toole and McKean co-wrote that unforgettable song, A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, for a Mighty Wind. But after today, you'll know them for a funeral platter. Jane was holding the stepladder for her husband when he fell. He climbed all the way up to the third rung. Careful, she told him. Careful. Then he appeared to let go. She watched his fingers peel away from the aluminum. There was no other explanation, really, but everything had happened so fast. Who could say for certain? Sprawled on his back in the grass, Martin stared up at her, stunned. I think I'm dead, Jane. Killed in a heroic plummet, dead at 74. Well, if you're dead, then surely I'm dead, too. She knelt beside him in the grass. Oh, we're dead. He tapped her knee. Focus on my untimely demise, please? We're dead. Jane ripped up clumps of grass and flung them into the breeze. Oh, we're dead. We're dead. I never saw it coming. Martin and Jane Warner found retirement challenging. So much time to kill. While Jane refilled the bird feeder and scattered peat moss in the garden, Martin reclined in his armchair and daydreamed about nautical disasters. While Martin fried eggs and linked sausages for breakfast, Jane worked her crossword puzzle at the kitchen table. Minutes ticked off the clock, and yet somehow it was still always 11 in the morning. At the breakfast table, after his tragic fall in the backyard, Martin shuffled cards and dealt a hand of blackjack. Jane had a king of hearts showing. Hit me, she said. 
are you planning to look at the other card before you make that decision? She picked up the cordless phone and dialed the Adamsons, their next door neighbors. Hiya, Barbara, she said. How are you? Will Severine be visiting you and Frank again this summer? What are you doing? Martin said and dealt her another card. We're in the middle of a hand. Oh, shush, you. You'd better sit down, Barbara. I have something awful to tell you. Marty died today. With the phone cradled between cheek and shoulder, she listened and nodded and sipped her iced hazelnut coffee. Yes, I know, dear, it's devastating. He fell picking plums from the tree in the backyard. Plums? The old donkey weakened and then I weakened. We're both on the fritz. Tragedy, comedy, who can say? Cupping one hand over the mouthpiece, she pointed to her cards and mouthed, I'll stay. Martin flipped a card for himself. Jack of hearts, he said, the Christ card. No, it's not a sick joke. We're dead, Barb. I'm sorry to be the one to have to tell you this, dear. She flipped her cards over. 17, Barbara, I know it must be hard for you. Anyhow, the funeral will be on Friday. Spread the word. Martin said, dealer as 20. Rats, Jane smiled at him. I should have taken a hit. You're not a real risk taker. Watch your tongue, plum picker. What, Barbara? No, he can't speak to you, dear. He's as dead as I am. Tell Barb I'm too damn busy composing our obituaries. These things don't write themselves, you know. Jane Warner greeted the mourners at the funeral home's front door. Thanks for coming, she said, squeezing hands. She wore a black high-collared dress with a bluish-purple orchid pinned to the bodice. So good of you to make it on such short notice. The guests sat but kept looking back at Jane, who had splurged on a facial manicure and tanning package at Oasis Day Spa in the shopping plaza out by the highway. In the back row, somebody broke the silence. A bearded man who wore sunglasses indoors floated a theory about a dark secret, something that would come to light in the weeks ahead. He leaned back in his seat, knitted his hands over his belly, and bragged about his familiarity with true crime shows. His neighbors were comforted by his certitude, but dismayed by his sunglasses. Earlier that morning, Martin and Jane had given him change outside the day spa where he sat on a milk crate, peddling tube socks. Decent of the man to accept their last-minute invitation. Martin Warner stood on the opposite side of the room, dressed in a black wool suit and a Windsor-knotted gray silk tie. His black orthopedic shoes painstakingly shined. He shook hands with all the men, leaned down to kiss the cheeks of women he had known for decades. Damn strange business death, he said. Hasn't really sunk in yet. Who will survive us? Who will remember us? He looked wildly around the room. Jane, my darling, where are you? She turned toward her husband. You rang, she replied in a deep voice. There are no grandchildren here. Can I take anybody's coat? Jane asked of nobody in particular. I'd love to just hang up a coat or two. <laughs> Dozens of mourners sat with bowed heads, studying their programs and hunting for clues. They read every word at least once. Nobody said anything. Terrible mistake not having sons and daughters, Martin Warner called out across the room. My career, my career, <coughs> it means nothing now. What was I thinking? Soda, anyone, Jane said. Seltzer water? Can I make anyone a tuna fish sandwich with potato chips and a dill pickle on the side? I knew I should have prepared a funeral platter. A few pounds of prosciutto and melon, simple. Who doesn't like honeydew? Two coffins, gleaming like stock cars under the bright ceiling lights, idled against the back wall. They sat atop pedestals draped in purple velvet. 
A day earlier, the Warners had picked out matching caskets under the supervision of the funeral home director, a sunburned man with a hyphenated name and a Florida-shaped birthmark on his cheek. A good choice, the man had said, bronze, durable, classic. Martin Warner wasn't having any of that malarkey. I am buying two coffins instead of one, so I expect a sizable discount on the second one, yes? The funeral director scratched his orange cheek with three fingers, producing a trio of fading white scars in the sunburn. I suppose I can give you the 30% off the second one, uh, his and hers deal. Martin Warner extended his hand. Acceptable, he said. They shook. Jane squeezed her husband's elbow when they left the negotiating table. You got him good, didn't you? She whispered. I won that round, Martin said. The mourners watched the mourners stroll down the center aisle to their bronze coffins. The old couple squeezed shoulders and shook hands, kissed cheeks. Good hosts to the last, they surveyed the crowd to ensure everybody was comfortable and lacked for nothing. Jane lagged behind her husband. Did you get your hair done, Colleen? She said to a woman in the third row, looks terrific. I've been thinking about having mine frosted, but I don't know if my limp hair would- Jane, Martin said. Coming, she called merrily. Then she stage whispered, he won't even be late to his own. Jane, there is another ceremony scheduled after hours. Be considerate. Here I am, she said in a loud voice, mugging for the audience. Sorry to keep you waiting, your majesty. Don't start, he said, not now. The Warners turned away from each other and waved and blew kisses as if departing on a cruise. They smiled and laughed and posed for photographs that nobody took. And why shouldn't they have smiled? After all, they'd been through. This funeral was a celebration of their long lives. They'd been fighting lately, true, and they still strongly disagreed on a number of issues, including the value and necessity of punctuality. But they'd been married for 41 years. A touch on the shoulder, a smile. It didn't take much to reverse the tides. Janie, Martin said, taking her hands in his. You've made me so happy. In sickness and in health, I give you my hands, my heart, my love. From this day forward until the end of time. In unison, two people in the front row said, Aw. Holy cow, Jane said. That was really beautiful, Marty. I didn't know that we... I didn't prepare. She patted her hair with both hands. Um, let's see here. Just have to wing it. How does that go again? Suntanned, windblown, honeymooners at last alone, feeling far above par. Oh, how lucky we are. She shook her head. No, that's not quite right. Dum-de-dum, passing strangers now. Funny how things can change. We were so inseparable. Now you're acting very strange. Wait a second. No, that's not quite right. I think that's enough, darling. But Jane broke free of his grasp and belted out another verse, kicking her heels in the air. There's no tomorrow when love is new. Now is forever when love is true. Never had a room gone more silent. It's time, Martin Warner said, tapping the face of his watch. Allow me to help you, my darling. As man and wife, they turned to face their coffins. Martin cradled Jane's buttocks as she struggled to climb in. He pushed her upward, bending his knees to protect his lower lumbar. She hooked one pale leg over the side, but couldn't seem to bring the other leg up. I'm stuck, she cried, straddling the edge. She took a moment to admire the assemblage of her many friends. Be well, she said to them, have a good weekend. She patted her husband's head. I'm ready. Push me over, please. Martin struggled beneath her, sweating. 
two young men from the community rushed forward to help, but he waved them off. I'm fine, he told them. And harnessing all of his remaining strength, shoved with tremendous force, his wife toppled over into her coffin. Thank you, she called out. Now that Jane was safely ensconced in the plush peach interior of her coffin, Martin Warner turned to face the mourners. The funeral was drawing to a close. Soon it would be all over. The minor triumphs and failures of his quiet life, the years spent alone in his downtown office, all the unexpected illnesses and celebrations, the unendurable retirement from work. Martin glanced back at his own shiny bronze coffin, the lid open. It was as flashy and ostentatious as any new Cadillac in a showroom. The funeral home director, that slick sunburnt bastard, had cashed in on a grieving couple's sorrow. It was so clear to him now, under the funeral home's tawdry fluorescent lights. No, sir, he said in a choked voice. That will not be the end. He turned away from his coffin and embarked on a solo climb to his wife's resting place. The purple velvet bunched under his knees. His dress shirt was soaked through with sweat, but he continued to hop and fall, grunting and cursing every time. One of his orthopedic shoes fell to the floor. The congregation cheered him on. A rhythmic clapping ensued, rolling in waves from the back of the room to the front. Go get her, Marty. Don't let her get away. He slipped twice more, crumpled to the floor, but refused to quit. Six men and women came forward and lifted him up on their linked hands. He teetered on this shaky foundation, straightened his legs and peered down at his beloved. The room fell silent again. What could a man say at such a moment? For Christ's sakes, Jane, do you have to take up the whole coffin? What's wrong with yours? I bet it's got that delightful new coffin smell. Do I have to give a reason for everything I do? We don't need the other one. Let me move my purse then. <sighs> okay, I'm ready now. The ceremony was almost over. Martin Warner wanted to say something wise and clever to everybody, give them a gift to take home something that might ease their worries about their own aging. The clock above the door told the story. This room would soon belong to other people. A new generation of men and women, strangers to him, waited outside the funeral door. They would pay a hefty fee for this space. He looked down at his bride, her stumpy little legs crossed at the ankles. There she was. Smart-mouthed Janie Paxton with that lopsided grin on her narrow mug, that annoying little pepper pot from Westchester, New York, looking like she'd seen it all before. Even this. Even this. Well, I'm waiting. You riding with me, Big Bear? <laughs> Martin laughed. He climbed in beside his wife and pulled the lid down over them both. Rest in peace. Annette O'Toole and Michael McKean performed Funeral Platter by Greg Ames from his collection of the same name. He's also the author of the novel Buffalo Lockjaw and teaches writing at Colgate University. Relationships in life and in fiction can take strange shapes. Like the shape of marriage, for instance. Whatever that means to the particular people involved, it's interesting territory. I thought about that same territory when I was writing my novel, The Wife, which follows a very long marriage over time. 
And one of my favorite novels is Mrs. Bridge by Evan S. Cannell. I urge you to read it. It's just wonderful. And it gives a picture of the domestic life and inner life of a Kansas City housewife before the start of World War II. She's very conventional. She's stuck. But she's also very much herself. And Cannell gives us that long, unblinking look at her. And he lets us know what it's like being her, even just for a while. And that's what fiction does. I'm always grateful when I'm given that kind of opportunity, since we spend our lives walking around only inside ourselves. I remember the moment when I realized this as a child, like, I only get to be me? But what about getting to know what it's like being you? And that's sort of when I started reading a lot. Reading fiction, and also sometimes listening to it, lets us branch out. Certainly, I feel that that happens whenever I listen to selected shorts. In our second story, Liberty, by Julia Alvarez, fact and fiction overlap. Alvarez's works include the novels How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents and In the Time of the Butterflies. These books and the stories and essays we've featured on shorts draw on her childhood in the Dominican Republic and on her eventual new life in America. In this really touching story, we see the link between those two worlds in the character of the family dog. Reader Laura Gomez also hails from the Dominican Republic. You may know her for her work on Orange is the New Black. Here she is to read Liberty by Julia Alvarez. Papi came home with a dog whose kind we had never seen before. A black and white speckle electric current of energy. It was a special breed with papers, like a person with a birth certificate. Mommy just kept staring at the puppy with a cross look on her face. It looks like a mess, she said. Take it back. Mommy, it is a gift, Poppy shook his head. It would be an insult to Mr. Victor, who had given us the dog. The American consul wanted to thank us for all we'd done for him since he'd been assigned to our country. If he wanted to thank us, he'd give us our visas, Mommy grumbled. For a while now, my parents had been talking about going to the United States so Poppy could return to school. I couldn't understand why a grown-up who could do whatever he wanted would elect to go back to a place I so much wanted to get out of. On their faces when they talked of leaving, there was a scared look I also couldn't understand. Those visas will come soon, Poppy promised. But Mommy just kept shaking her head about the dog. She had enough with four girls to take on Poppy's too. Poppy explained that the dog would stay at the end of the yard in a pen. He would not be allowed in the house. He would not be pooping in Mommy's orchid garden. He would not be barking until late at night. A well-behaved dog, Poppy concluded. An American dog. The little black and white Poppy yanked at Poppy's trouser cuff with his mouth. What shall we call you? Poppy asked him. Trouble, Mommy suggested, kicking the puppy away. He had left Poppy's trousers to come slobber on her leg. We will call him Liberty. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Poppy quoted the USA Constitution. Eh, Liberty, you are a lucky sign. Liberty barked his little toy barks, and all us kids laughed. Trouble. Mommy kept shaking her head as she walked away. Liberty trotted behind her as if he agreed that that was the better name for him. Mommy was right, too. Liberty turned out to be trouble. 
He ate all of mommy's orchids. And that little hyperactive a ton of a tail knocked things off the low coffee table whenever Liberty climbed on the couch to leave his footprints in among the flower prints. He tore up mommy's garden looking for buried treasure. Mommy screamed at Liberty and stamped her foot. Perro sinvergüenza! But Liberty just barked back at her. He doesn't understand Spanish, Poppy said lamely. Maybe if you correct him in English, he'll behave better. Mommy turned on him, her slipper still in midair. Her face looked as if she'd lied into him after she was done with Liberty. Let him go be a pet in his own country if he wants instructions in English. In recent weeks, Mommy had changed her tune about going to the United States. She wanted to stay in her own country. She didn't want Mr. Victor coming around our house and going off into the study with Poppy to talk over important things in low, worried voices. All liberty involves sacrifice, Poppy said in a careful voice. Liberty gave a few perky barks, as if he agreed with that. Mommy glared at Poppy. I told you I don't want trouble. She was going to say more, but her eye fell on me and she stopped herself. Why aren't you with the others, she scolded. It was as if I had been the one who had dug up her lily bulbs. The truth was that after Liberty arrived, I never played with the others. It was as if I had found my double in another species. I had always been the tomboy, the life wire, the troublemaker, the one who was going to drive mommy to drink, the one she was going to give away to the Haitians. While the sisters dressed pretty and stayed clean in the playroom, I was out roaming the world looking for trouble. And now I had found someone to share my adventures. I'll take Liberty back to his pen, I offered. There was something I had figured out that Liberty had yet to learn. When to get out of mommy's way. She didn't say yes, and she didn't say no. She seemed distracted, as if something else was on her mind. As I led Liberty away by his color, I could see her talking to Poppy. Suddenly, she started to cry, and Poppy held her. It's okay, I consoled Liberty. Mommy doesn't mean it. She really does love you. She's just nervous. It was what my father always said when Mommy scolded me harshly. At the back of the property stood Liberty's pen, a chain-link fence around a dirt square at the center of which stood a doghouse. Poppy had built it when Liberty first came, a cute little house, but then he painted it a putrid green that reminded me of all the vegetables I didn't like. It was always a job to get Liberty to go into that pen. Sure enough, as soon as he saw where we were headed, he took off barking toward the house, then swerved to the front yard to our favorite spot. It was a grassy knoll surrounded by a tall hibiscus hedge. At the center stood a tall, shady saman tree. From there, no one could see you up at the house. Whenever I did something wrong, this was where I hid out until the punishment winds blew over. That was where Liberty headed, and I was passed behind on his trail. Inside the clearing, I stopped short. Two strange men in dark glasses were crouched behind the hedge. The fat one had seized Liberty by the collar and was pulling so hard on it that poor Liberty was almost standing on his hind legs. When he saw me, Liberty began to bark, and the man holding him gave him a yank on the collar that made me sick to my stomach. I began to back away, but the other man grabbed my arm. Not so fast, he said. Two little scare faces, my own, 
looked down at me from his glasses. I came for my dog, I said on the verge of tears. Good thing you found him, the man said. Give the young lady her dog, he ordered his friend. And then he turned to me. You haven't seen us, you understand? I didn't understand. It was usually I who was the one lying and grown-ups telling me to tell the truth. But I nodded, relieved when the man released my arm and Liberty was back in my hands. It's okay, Liberty. I embraced him when I put him back in his pen. He was as sad as I was. We had both had a hard time with Mommy, but this was the first time we'd come across mean, scary people. The fat man had almost broken Liberty's neck, and the other one had left his fingerprints on my arm. After I locked up the pen, I watched Liberty wander back slowly to his house and actually go inside, turn around, and stick his little head out the door. He'd always avoided that ugly doghouse before. I walked back to my own house, head down, to find my parents and tell them what I had seen. Overnight, it seemed, Mr. Victor moved in. He ate all his meals with us, stayed till late, and when he had to leave, someone from the embassy was left behind to keep an eye on things. Now, when Papi and Mr. Victor talked, or when the Tios came over, they all went down to the back of the property near Liberty's pen to talk. Mommy had found some wires in the study, behind the portrait of Papi's great-grandmother fanning herself with a painted fan. The wires ran behind a screen and then out a window, where there was a little box with lots of other wires coming from different parts of the house. Mommy explained that it was no longer safe to talk in the house about certain things. But the only way you knew what things those were was when Mommy leveled her eyes on you as if she were pressing the off button on your mouth. She did this every time I asked her what was going on. Nothing, she said stiffly. And then she urged me to go outside and play. Forgotten were the admonitions to go study, or I would flunk out the fifth grade. To go take a bath, or the microbes might kill me. To drink my milk, or I would grow up stunted and with no teeth. Mommy seemed absent and tense and always in tears. Papi was right. She was too nervous, poor thing. I myself was enjoying a heyday of liberty. Several times, I even got away with having one of Mr. Victor's Coca-Colas for breakfast instead of my boiled milk with a beaten egg, which Liberty was able to enjoy instead. You love that dog, don't you? Mr. Victor asked me one day. He was standing by the pen with Poppy, waiting for the uncles. He had a funny accent that sounded like someone making fun of Spanish when he spoke it. I ran Liberty through some of the little tricks I had taught him, and Mr. Victor laughed. His face was full of freckles, so that it looked as if he and Liberty were kin. I had the impression that God had spilled a lot of his colors when he was making American things. Soon the uncles arrived, and the men set to talking. I wandered into the pen and sat beside Liberty with my back to the house and listened. The men were speaking in English, and I had picked up enough of it at school and in my parents' conversation to make out most of what was being said. They were planning some hunting expedition for a goat with guns to be delivered by Mr. Charlie. Papi was going to have to leave the goat to the others because his tennis shoes were missing. Though I understood the words, or thought I did, none of it made sense. I knew my father did not own a pair of tennis shoes. We didn't know Mr. Charlie, 
And who ever heard of hunting a goat? As Liberty and I sat there with the sun baking the tops of our heads, I had the sense that the world as I knew it was about to end. The image of the two men in mirror glasses flashed through my head. So as not to think about them, I put my arm around Liberty and buried my face in his neck. Late one morning, Mommy gave my sisters and me the news. Our visa had come. Mr. Victor had arranged everything, and that very night we were going to the United States of America. Wasn't that wonderful? She flashed us a bright smile, as if someone were taking her picture. We stood together watching her, alarmed at this performance of happiness when really she looked like she wanted to cry. All morning, aunts had been stopping by and planting big kisses on our foreheads and holding our faces in their hands and asking us to promise we would be very good. Until now, we hadn't a clue why they were so worked up. Mommy kept smiling her company's smile. She had a little job for each of us to do. There would not be room in our bags for everything. We were to pick the one toy we wanted to take with us to the United States. I didn't even have to think twice about my choice. It had suddenly dawned on me we were leaving, and that meant leaving everything behind. I want to take liberty. Mommy started shaking her head no. We could not take a dog into the United States of America. That was not allowed. Please, I begged with all my might. Please, please, Mommy, please. Repetition sometimes worked. Each time you said the word, it was like giving a little push to the yes that was having a hard time rolling out of her mouth. I said no. The bright smile on Mommy's face had grown dimmer and dimmer. N-O. She spelled it out for me in case I was confusing no with another word like yes. I said a toy, and I mean a toy. I burst into tears. I was not going to the United States unless I could take liberty. Mommy shook me by the shoulders and asked me between clenched teeth if I didn't understand we had to go to the United States or else. But all I could understand was that a world without liberty would break my heart. I was inconsolable. Mommy began to cry. Diamimi took me aside. She had gone to school in the States and always had her nose in a book. In spite of her poor taste in how to spend her free time, I still loved her because she had smart things to say, like telling Mommy that punishment was not the way to make kids behave. I'm going to tell you a little secret, she offered now. You're going to find liberty when you get to the United States. Really? I asked. She hesitated a minute, and then she gave me a quick nod. You'll see what I mean, she said. And then, giving me a pat on the butt, she added, Come on, let's go back. How about taking that wonderful book I got you on the Arabian Nights? Late in the night, someone comes in and shakes us awake. It's time. Half asleep, we put on our clothes, hands helping our arms to go into the right sleeves, button us up, running a comb through our hair. We were put to sleep hours earlier because the plane had not come in. But now it's time. Go sit by the door, we are ordered, as the hands, the many hands that now seem to be in control, finish with us. We file out of the bedroom one by one and go sit on the bench where packages are set down when mommy comes in from shopping. There is much rushing around. Mr. Victor comes by and pats us on the head like dogs. We'll have to wait a few more minutes, he says. 
in that wait, one sister has to go to the bathroom, another wants a drink of water. I am left sitting with my baby sister, who is dozing with her head on my shoulder. I lay her head down on the bench and slip out. Through the dark patio down the path to the back of the yard I go. Every now and then a strange figure flashes by. I have said goodbye to Liberty a dozen times already, but there is something else I have left to do. Sitting on the bench, I had an image again of those two men in mirror glasses. After we are gone, they come onto the property. They smash the picture of Poppy's great-grandmother finding herself. They knock over the things on the coffee table as if they don't know any better. They throw the flower cushions on the floor. They smash the windows. And then they come to the back of the property and they find Liberty. Quickly, because I hear calling from the big house, I slip open the door of the pen. Liberty is all over me, wagging his tail so it beats against my legs, jumping up and licking my face. Get away, I order sharply, in a voice he's not used to hearing from me. I begin walking back to the house, not looking around so as not to encourage him. I want him to run away before the gangsters come. He doesn't understand, and he keeps following me. Finally, I have to resort to mommy's techniques. I kick him, softly at first, but then, when he keeps tagging behind me, I kick him hard. He whimpers and dashes away toward the front yard, disappearing in areas of darkness, then reappearing when he passes through lighted areas. At the front of the house, instead of turning toward our secret place, he keeps on going straight down the drive through the big gates, to the world out there. He will beat me to the United States, it's what I am thinking as I head back to the house. I will find liberty there, like Tia Mimi says. But I already sense it is a different kind of liberty my aunt means. All I can do is hope that when we come back, as Mami has promised we will, my liberty will be waiting for me here. Laura Gomez performed Liberty by Julia Alvarez. I'm Meg Wallitzer. I was really excited when I learned that one of Julia Alvarez's stories would be part of the show. I've been reading her fiction for a really long time, decades, and the characters have stayed with me. And they stayed with her, too, because in 1997, she published Yo!, a sequel to her 1991 novel, How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents. When we return, what dogs teach us. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. Each week, our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The narrator of Amy Hempel's The Dog of the Marriage trains guide dogs for the blind. This tender and wrenching story is about letting go of the dogs and of a failed marriage. Hempel's short fiction collections include The Dog of the Marriage, 
Reasons to Live, At the Gates of the Animal Kingdom, Tumble Home, and The Collected Stories. There's no one better at conveying the agonizing subtlety of relationships, and in this case, Hempel is writing from experience. She began as a volunteer puppy raiser for Guiding Eyes of the Blind in 1996. The dog of the marriage was presented as part of an evening at Symphony Space devoted to dog-themed fiction, and Hempel brought one of her inspirations with her. Here she is speaking from the stage at Symphony Space. I'm being walked out here by Juanita. Just a sec, Juanita, sit. This beautiful girl is a four-and-a-half-year-old uh, yellow lab with guiding eyes for the blind up in Westchester. She was trained to be a guide dog, uh, but was selected for her excellent genes uh, to be a brood in their brood stud program. She gave birth to nine gorgeous, gorgeous, healthy puppies seven weeks ago, which will become guide dogs. <laughs> and the story that Joan will be reading, you'll hear just how much of an impact these dogs, Juanita and Savoy, have had on my work. They just sort of insinuate themselves onto the page, and I'm very grateful to them for that. That was Amy Hempel speaking from the stage at Symphony Space. Reading The Dog of the Marriage is the elegant, award-winning actor Joan Allen, whose films include Nixon, The Ice Storm, and Room. She starred in the ABC thriller The Family and appears in the adaptation of Stephen King's Lisey's Story. Here's The Dog of the Marriage. On the last night of the marriage, my husband and I went to the ballet. We sat behind a blind man. His guide dog in harness lay beside him in the aisle of the theater. I could not keep my attention on the performance. Instead, I watched the guide dog watch the performance. Throughout the evening, the dog's head moved, following the dancers across the stage. Every so often, the dog would whimper slightly. Because he can hear high notes, we can't, my husband said. No, I said, because he was disappointed in the choreography. <laughs> I work with these dogs every day, and their capability, their decency, shames me. I am trying not to take things personally. This on advice from the evaluator at the School for the Blind, where I train dogs. She had overheard me ask a Labrador retriever, are you trying to ruin my day? <laughs> I suppose there are many things one should try not to take personally. An absence of convenient parking, inclement weather, a husband who finds that he loves someone else. When I get low, I take a retired guide dog to the local hospital. Any time is good, but around holidays is best. I will dress a handsome shepherd in a Santa Claus suit and visit the Catholic hospital and bust in on the morning spiritual counseling. <laughs> Once I heard a nun ask a patient if he was nervous about the test that was scheduled for him that afternoon and the patient, a young man, told the nun he hadn't known there was a test scheduled. <laughs> but now that he did, he truthfully could say that yes, he was nervous. <laughs> then he saw Santa in the hallway outside his door and called, my God, get that dog in here. And so we perform a service. At work, what I technically do is pre-train. I do basic obedience and then some. 
If I am successful and the dog has the desired temperament, a more skilled trainer will work for months to turn the dog into a guide for a blind partner. I don't know any blind people. I'm in it for the dogs. Although I remember the job interview I had before this job, I thought I might like to work in the music business. But my husband urged me in the direction of my first love, dogs. The man who would have been my employer at the record company asked me why I wanted to work there. I said, because I love music. And he said, maybe the love affair is best carried on outside the office. <laughs> Are guide dogs happy? My husband asked at the start. I considered this and cited the expert who believes that an animal's happiness derives from doing his job. So in that respect, yes, I said I would think that guide dogs are happy. Then why do they all look like Eleanor Roosevelt, he said. <laughs> I told him about the way they get to know you, not the way people do, the way people flatter you by wanting to know every last thing about you, only it isn't a compliment, it is just efficient. A person getting more quickly to the end of you. Correction. Dogs do want to know every last thing about you. They take in the smell of you. They know from the next room asleep when a mood settles over you. The difference is there's not an end to it. I could tell my husband now about Goodman in the garden. I raised Goodman myself, solid black lab, and after a year, I gave him up the way you do for further training and a life with Alice Banks. Alice was a gardener. She and her husband relaxed on weekends, tending beds of annuals and several kinds of tomatoes. When Alice and Goodman graduated from the program, Alice said I was welcome to stay in touch. It is always the blind person's call. We exchanged letters for several months, and in the spring, I sent her a package of things for the yard. Then I got a letter from Alice's husband, Paul. He said they had been weeding in the garden, Goodman off duty and retrieving a tossed ball. When Goodman found himself in the tomato patch, Paul wrote, he picked something up in his mouth and began yipping with excitement, tossing the thing into the air and running in circles to retrieve it. Paul told me that Goodman had found one of the sachets I had made to keep away dear. It was a packet of cheesecloth stuffed with my hair. That is how I like to be known. It was something I learned from my husband who trusted natural ways to keep predators away. Today I am known as the unusual person this is a test wherein I pull my windbreaker up over my head from behind and stagger around the corner and lurch menacingly down the walkway toward the dog in training. A volunteer will have the dog on a lead and attempt to walk the dog past me. We will see if the dog startles or balks or demonstrates curiosity. If the dog does startle, we'll see if he recovers quickly and continues on his way. Before lunch, I test half a dozen dogs. The first one walks by without a glance. He's being raised in New York City. <laughs> the suburban dogs are skittish when they pass. But only one barks, and on the second approach, she too is quiet and passes. I am not a threat. I eat quickly and head over across the quad to the best part of this place, the whelping center. 
The broods are brought here a couple of days before their due dates and are settled in quiet kennels where there will be a quilt on the floor and a handful of biscuits waiting. Chicken soup for dinner. The women who work here are unflappable and funny and intuitive and have substantial personalities, though they are, some of them, elfin. If only I had been raised here, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I contrive excuses to bring myself often to the whelping center. Sometimes I scoot into a kennel and warm my hands under the heat lamp, trained over the newborn sleeping inside a plastic kiddie pool lined with towels, their eyes not yet open, their ears leathery tabs. I feel here optimistic, yet hopeful. Jubilant, yet happy. This is the way I thought and spoke for an irritating year as a girl, annoying the teachers at the girls' school I attended. In school, I was diligent, yet hardworking. The headmistress, I felt, was impartial, yet fair. Jeanette will find me like this, sitting in the pen, eyes closed, puppies nursing on my fingertips, and say, don't just sit there, get busy. Ha-ha, Jeanette, it's the command, get busy for a guide dog to eliminate. I often time my visits to when the older puppies are fed. A Labrador eating looks like time-lapse photography. After the pups have been weaned and are on to softened kibble, their food is set down for them in bowls, like bundt cake pans, a kind of circular trough. They crowd in around it and the pan begins to turn. It spins faster as they eat and push until the pups are like propeller blades. <laughs> then they'll move in the opposite direction and the bowl spins the other way, as though they are in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> One of the staff put a cartoon on the wall, Why Dogs Never Survive Shipwrecks. It's the captain dog standing up in a lifeboat addressing the other dogs. Those in favor of eating all the food now say, aye. <laughs> a beauty came in yesterday, Stella, out of Barnstormer Billy and One-Eyed Tara. Stella will have an A litter. We name the litters alphabetically. So in the time I have left, I write down the names in a tiny three-ring binder. Avalon, Ardor, Abel, Axel. Jeanette looks over my shoulder and says, like Axel Rose? You don't look like a headbanger. Acre. I was looking in the dictionary. And after acre, it said from the Latin, agere, to lead. In the afternoon, stairs closed and open up and down on a short lead. It is astonishing to find out how quickly the wrong things come into your head. I don't mean the vain thoughts that are unseemly and irrelevant in surroundings such as these. I mean that I can pause outside a kennel to dip my shoes in bleach and be visited by the memory of shattering glass, the way the etched glass of the heirloom globe exploded. I had lit a candle in the old lamp but had not fitted it carefully. 
As it burned, it tilted until it touched the hand-blown glass, handily prefiguring the news over dessert that my husband was going to get on with it because how long was a person supposed to give the other person to come back? Last night, Stella delivered early. Nine healthy puppies and one, the smallest, a female with a cleft palate. She died within minutes. Fran, the staffer present at the whelp, entered it in her log, her notation including the name she gave this pup, Angel. There are those of us who seek Fran out in the hope that something of her rubs off. Fran helped Stella deliver over a period of seven hours. At midnight, when there had been three quiet hours, Fran helped Stella to her feet and ran the ultrasound scanner over the dog's belly. Nothing showed up on the monitor, so Fran left the kennel to get some sleep. Yet in the morning, when she checked in on the mother, there were 10 healthy puppies nursing. During the night, Stella had given birth to one more, a female, as though to replace the one who had died. I said, why didn't we name her after? or put a little French on it, après. <laughs> but Fran said no, she wanted to name her for Angel. Sentimental? I am not the one to say. Before I gave up Goodman, I made a tape recording of his snores. <laughs> Maybe it was fatigue or the sadness of losing the runt, but Fran snapped at me when I showed up for work. She asked a perfunctory question. I should have said I was fine, but instead, I observed that this was the day my husband left for Paris with his new girlfriend. Like you have a right to complain, Fran said, incredulous. Let's think back one short year. I was stung and flushed and fumbled at the sink. Did I expect sympathy? Browbeaten, yet subdued. Subdued, yet humbled. <laughs> I left the room before she could say I didn't have a leg to stand on or the shoe was on the other foot. Back in the lounge, I wiped at the antibacterial wash I had splashed on my jeans. What gets on my clothes here, if it came from a person, I'd be sick. Last week, I was in the infirmary when a lab was brought in with the tip of his tail cut off by a car door. Yet he was so happy to see the veterinarian that he wagged his tail madly and sprayed us all with blood back and forth in wide arcs. The walls and the cabinets, too. There is much to learn from these dogs, and we must learn these things over and over. In the way that we know things before we know them, I dreamed that I swam across Lake Michigan, then pulled myself up on a raft near shore. Just then, the light changed in such a way that everything underwater was visible in silhouette, and giant hammerheads shadowed by. This was the night before my husband told me about Paris. And even in the dream, I remember thinking, if I had known what was in the lake, I never would have gone in. It's a warmish day for December, so I take one of the broods for a walk on the grounds. It's a lovely old neighborhood. 
Down the road from the school is one of those classic mansions you admire until you notice it's a funeral home. <laughs> Every day I drive past it to get here and an image undoes me, though I can't quite say why. A pair of white gloves folded over the wheel of an old Ford Fairlane outside a funeral home in Georgia in June. The sight of geese has this effect on me too. The dogs scare them up from the pond. When my best friend and I were in the first grade, her father acquired a dozen German Emdens. He let them roam freely around the yard. Every evening when he came home from work, he would turn a hose on the droppings they left in the drive. The grass along both sides of the blacktop was a stripe of vivid green. He was a little eccentric and the first of my friend's parents to die. Buddha, Baxter, Bailey, Baywatch. I throw that last one in for Jeanette. Working a litter ahead. We don't name the pups until they are four weeks old and get their ears tattooed, but still, it's good to be ready. Back in the lounge, there are letters from a sister school in Canada that has taken several of our dogs who failed the qualifying exam, except we don't say failed. We say the dog was reassigned or released for adoption as a pet. Canada will take a soft dog, one who maybe startles or is a bit less independent. Maybe it's like William Faulkner not getting into the US Army Air Force and then going to fly for Canada. What's with Canada? (laughs) Trying to smooth things over, I guess, Fran asks for a hand in putting together the invitation for the Christmas party. I make James Thurber look like da Vinci, but I stay late. It's the night of the sixth months and underclass, the babies, and work up a festive border. The party is a high point for the volunteers who raise the puppies. They bring them to the high school gymnasium we borrow and dress them up in Santa hats or felt reindeer antlers held on with chin straps. And there are cookies for everyone. And in the center of the gym floor, there is a large cardboard box filled with wrapped gifts. On the command, the volunteers walk their dogs one at a time up to the box where the dog is allowed to reach in and select a present, then return in a mannerly way to his spot. They get excited, of course, and invariably there will be a dog like Ivan last year who will get to the box and jump in. (laughs) Everyone wants to know how you do it, how you raise a puppy, and train it for a year and a half and then give it up. Because you don't just love the dogs, you fall in love with them. A love affair begins with a fantasy. For instance, that the beloved will always be there. But these love affairs begin with yearning and for a future that won't be shared. Good training. There is a zen-like quality to this work if you can find reward in staying in the moment and in giving up what you love because someone else's need is greater. Sounds good in theory. But I counseled a volunteer who was coming up on the separation and she was crying and angry and she said, just because I'm not blind. She said, what if he never swims again? Swimming is his favorite thing. 
I said, you know how dogs pause, paddle in their sleep? Dreams, the place most of us get what we need. There is another side to this. It makes a pretty picture. The folks who raise the pups and then have to give them up? When the dogs get old and retire, the raisers can get them back. They can take them back in their well-earned rest. Raise enough puppies over the years, a steady stream of dear ones returning home. Fran doesn't hold a grudge. She says she liked the invitation. And we walk together to the office to have it copied. There are people whose goodness brings them to do this work, and there are those of us who come here for it. Both ways work, although metaphorically I am still in the lake, priding myself on a strong Australian crawl while nearby a hammerhead waits. Never mind the fact that this ravenous shark in real life is found in warm seas. It is with me in the lake where I mourn my lost status as someone who doesn't cause problems and prove again that life is one long medley of prayers that we are not exposed and try to convince myself that people who seem to suffer are not in fact unhappy and want to be persuaded by the Japanese poem, The Barn Burned Down. Now I can see the moon. Did I invite this? It is like sitting in prayers at school when the headmistress says, who dropped lunch bags on the hockey field? And although you went home for lunch, you think, I did. I did. That was Joan Allen performing Amy Hempel's The Dog of the Marriage. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Sherman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Lemberg Foundation. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.